0: Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. Welcome to another episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and I'm super excited to be chatting with Sochil Herrera-Share. Now, Sochil runs a company called the Chicago Pattern Maker, and that's what she does. She works out of Chicago, and she does a lot of pattern making but also stuff beyond that for a lot of startup and indie fashion brands out there Uh, she can help you from the very beginning of the process design all the way through the development um, and help you get placed with the right factory for production and in our conversation she goes through the whole development process and cycle so you know what you're getting into you understand some of the terminology and understand some of the essential pieces and parts That you're gonna need to have ready. She also shares her best advice and tips on how you can approach service providers, both uh, developers and uh, product developers and uh, service providers who help you get into production as well as factories. She shares tips on how to approach those service providers professionally to make sure that they take you seriously and that you get noticed and that you hear back from them. Um, And she also gives us some great advice on how you can be most prepared to make the most of your time and your money throughout the entire product development process. So, so much great insight here. If you are, first of all, looking to kickstart your own service-based business like this, maybe you've worked in the industry and you're like, I would love to provide services like this to a two different brands. She does talk a little bit about how she kickstarted her company and how she grew and got clients. But the majority of the interview, after the first 10 minutes or so, we really dive into the entire product development process. So if you're out there and you are thinking about going into product development, you have an idea or you've already kickstarted it, this is gonna be a great, great episode for you to listen to. Uh, before we pop into the interview, I wanna bring something up that I hear over and over again, and it is this line of, what else do you do besides the podcast? So there is a lot that we do besides the podcast. The podcast is just a tiny piece of the successful fashion designer business. And beyond this, we have tons of ebooks and templates and tutorials on things like uh, getting your your dream fashion job, portfolios, tech packs, working in Adobe Illustrator, all sorts of stuff. 90% of our content is absolutely free and can really help you kickstart your fashion brand or land your dream job or get your portfolio together so you can start putting yourself out there and I don't always mention this on the show so I want to make sure that you know about all these other resources besides the podcast so sorry I didn't tell you about this sooner but what I would love to do is send you my best resources absolutely free just as a podcast listener so here's what you can do hit pause in this episode right now and go to soheidi.com email it's sewheid icom slash email drop your information there and I will send you all my best stuff for free to help you get ahead in your fashion career alright now Access to the show notes. You can always scroll down by, uh, you can get those by scrolling down wherever you're listening. And now let's jump into the interview with Sochil. Welcome, Sochil, to the Successful Fashion Designer podcast. Um, can you start out by introducing yourself to everyone in the fashion industry, everyone listening, and let us know who you are and what you do in the fashion industry? Absolutely.
1: Thank you. Um, so my name is Sochil Herrera Shear. Um, I have a company called the Chicago Powder Maker. And basically, I offer pattern making and product development services to small small to mid-sized brands. Um, we work with a lot of startups um, and kind of independent designers, helping them with tech packs, uh, design sourcing, patterns and prototypes, which we do all in-house. And I have a small but growing little team with me um, that's been growing over the last uh, 10 years. This is my 10th year in business. so. Wow.
0: Um, yeah. That's <laughs> I didn't know it had been that long. Yeah. So where did this all start? How did you like kickstart your career in the industry, and is this what you kickstarted with?
1: So I started relatively early um, out of school, just kind of as a freelancing, um, so I don't really consider even that my start. I, I, to back up, I got my first job um, out of college for a small boutique in Chicago where right. I kind of simultaneously did, like, retail management as well as um, helping sew um, in-house line of handbags. And we also did what we called restyling or, like, a redesigning of people's older garments. So they would bring in, like, things from the thrift store or an old bridesmaid's dress or an heirloom garment that they might have, Uh. and we would change it. So I'd, like, take it apart, redesign it into something new. And so I feel like I really built, like, kind of my pattern-making interest, um, just based on taking things apart and making things for different people, different items each time. Um, So long long story short, the the job ended in around 2009. Uh, The store unfortunately closed. Um, A lot of things obviously closed that year. So I was left with kind of, what do I do now? And rather than going into a new retail position, um, which was kind of the only option at the time, I decided... Let me take this, you know, thing I've been freelancing kind of on the side with, and try to start a real business. So I started networking and talking with everyone and everyone I could, um, announcing, you know, that I do patterns and tech packs and development services, and slowly grew that. Um, uh, when I first started, I also cobbled together. I was doing like tailoring part time, and I worked for as a pattern maker for uh, a, another boutique just part time, like two days a week or one day a week, as she needed me, um, until I, you know, here today with full time job, uh, probably more so than a full time job, and then <laughs> and <laughs> team under <team>.
0: me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so did yeah. what did you study in school? Uh, so I went to the Illinois Institute of Art for fashion design. Okay. And then after that, I went to grad school. Um, so I have a, a graduate certificate in entrepreneurship. I definitely knew I wanted to have my own business um, someday. I think it happened a little earlier than <laughs> I anticipated it to, but I'm glad, you know, it worked out the way that it did. And
0: yeah. <laughs> okay. So I definitely want to talk about, you know, a little bit more about your the process and, and what the pattern making and development process and the tech packs and all the stuff that you do for these brands. Um, but I I want to chat for just another minute on you sort of kickstarting this business because um, I know there's a lot of people out there listening who... Could be in a very similar position to you and they want to, you know, maybe do some freelancing or kickstart something like this. So you said you you lost that job, it was two thousand nine, obviously the recession had just hit, a lot of things were closing, and you just went out and started networking. Like what did that actually look like? And how were you talking to people and ultimately turning them into paying customers so that you were making money and turning this into something? So a lot of it, I feel like 2009 is obviously like a totally different time period than we are today.
1: So I think it'd actually be easier <laughs> to network today <laughs> with all the tools that we have available to us, um, namely like LinkedIn and Instagram. Um, but at the time I just went to like every single like small business or like community designer, um, like networking events, educational like seminars, just so I could meet other people who are in fashion or trying to be in fashion, Um, Two organizations that put a lot of those on in Chicago are um, FGI, which is Fashion Group International. And then the other is AIBI, which is the Apparel Industry Board of Illinois, and that one was really more focused on like the designer community and also factories. So I kind of networked not only with like peers and designers um, through those organizations, but also getting in touch with factories and saying like, "Hey, if you need someone to help with pattern making, because um, a lot of people approach factories, you know, before they're ready, and the factory might not have an in-house person, but if they have someone to refer." their business too um, I can send them back to the factory once that person is actually ready for them so I think those type of relationships were like the biggest for me Um, online you know as I grew online became more important um, and it is today I still get people contacting me through LinkedIn or Instagram for jobs or um, to talk through like a design they're thinking about Um, so I think today it'd probably be more so that versus in-person events but Even still, clients will refer, um, you know, business and I may not have seen the client for, you know, three years now, but they remember a good experience in the past and they'll refer, refer business, um, still today, which is cool.
0: Yeah, that is cool. Those, those relationships and that word of mouth is really, really powerful. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, okay, so you just kind of got out there, started having conversations with people, and meeting people. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, we've, we, we talk about networking a lot on this podcast, but it's something, you know, I, I kind of push and, like, really try to dig into, like, well, what did you actually do? Like, what was your method? Because there's different strategies that sounds like going out to the events and then also connecting with the people online. And um, and mm-hmm. then just building those good relationships and doing an exceptional job so even three years down the road they remember to refer someone to you because they remember a great experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. And once, once I got comfortable with like speaking in front of small groups, I started like volunteering to put on a seminar and like talk about tech packs or talk about yeah. pattern making or talk about different things. And then that, you know, it shows, you know, what you're talking about. It gets you comfortable in front of a group. And it also, I think, makes people trust, you know, you a little bit before they actually get to know you through those type of events.
0: Yeah, because I follow you on Instagram and you post a lot on stories of you are constantly, I mean, it looks like constantly, and I know you've got a daughter and a family and um, obviously are very busy with work, but I'm always impressed with how many events and things you're at, not just as an attendee, but also maybe doing a presentation or being on a panel or something.
1: Right. Yeah, and I think that's really important to get out there and yeah, especially in your city. Um I mean, my clients are around the country, but I think just being able to do things in my city, whether that's going and talking with a school group or um I partner with the DG Expo when they come to Chicago a lot and um and that's a great trade show cuz it's all for like indie designers and small designers. Um so it's the the right people for me to get in front of. Um, I think it's been a focus over the last like two years for me to actually like put myself on camera and <laughs> force myself into Instagram stories, yeah, even if it's sometimes uncomfortable. Like I'm getting myself out there yeah. and the feedback's been great. So I think people are appreciating, you know, the the little I'm able to share. Obviously with Instagram, I don't want to put out like exactly what I'm working on with the client. I have to respect, you know, the confidentiality of any product development that's ongoing, but Um, what I am able to share. I think people enjoy that. So I enjoy sharing it too.
0: Yeah. Well, I I feel like you do a great job. Like I said, I I do follow your stories and watch what you post and you always seem to be very engaged and and active. And it's a good balance of just behind the scenes and also like showing that you know what you're talking about and that you're involved in the community, which I think goes a long way, like you've said. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So, okay. So let's dive in now to like what you actually do. So, Let's say that, uh, what does the process typically look like? Like when someone approaches you, and and I know it can vary maybe depending on where they're at in the stage, but talk us through a little bit of the process for, um, you know, the services that you offer, and and then we'll kind of dig into each of those independently.
1: Okay. Um, So basically, people will reach out. Oftentimes it's, oh, I have this idea, and sometimes they are more thought out or even have tech packs, um, you know, simple tech packs put together. So the, the variety of inquiry varies quite a bit. Um, but my first kind of step in the process, regardless of that, is starting with, like, design and sourcing. We have to know what you're making and what you're making it out of before we ever, you know, go to the computer and make a pattern. So the first step is sketching. Um or refining their sketches, um, again, to kind of depending on their artistic ability and what they're trying to convey, um, and putting together like the first steps of the tech pack. So your design details, a little bit of construction, um, although sometimes that changes of course in prototyping, but just kind of like, what are we making? You know, I have to understand the seam allowances, things like that. Um, and then what are we making it out of? So we're sourcing, I am either sending them to trade shows. Sometimes I attend trade shows and I'll, you know, pull resources from that or I send them to vendors. Um, like the sourcing district is one. Um, I know Jay's been
0: on your, your podcast as well. Yeah. Um, we'll link to that episode in the show notes.
1: Yeah. So, and he's, you know, local to me. So we send a lot of people over there and, Yeah, get that kind of baseline, then we're ready to move forward from like that initial tech pack um, into first pattern and first prototype. Um, I usually like to use their real fabric and prototyping just because you get the best, you know, most accurate result that way. Uh, Unless in some cases where their fabric is, you know, crazy expensive. If it's $50 a yard, maybe we use a substitute. But in most cases, we like to use the real thing um, and the real machines as much as possible. So I, I do have a, a CAD system. So I do my patterns primarily, um, even first pattern drafts in the CAD, uh, print them out. Um, so the prototypes, either myself or um, my sample sewer will do them for me. Um, we'll obviously work together closely to make sure that first one is as good as we can get it. And then move into the process of fitting revisions, um, You know, making another sample until it's fit approved usually for the average person um, that might be three or four rounds per design but we sometimes, like, we've had unicorns where they approved it on the first prototype,
0: which is <laughs> Woo! That is, had, I know, it's happened, a unicorn. Yeah, it's totally a unicorn. Exciting.
1: <laughs> <Super> <laughs> exciting when that happens. Um, and then we've had some where, like, someone's inventing something kind of unique or very functional, and, we you know, we'll go 10 prototypes in. But, it, you know, that's obviously not everyone either. So three to four is kind of normal. Um, and from there, we go into grading, um, I work with a partner in Chicago, uh, On Point Patterns. Um, her name Kelsey, and she does most of my grading. So I email her over the files; she takes care of that. And then, depending on the factory, we're either you know printing markers or sending the files, prepping that relationship with the factory to do a first factory
0: sample. <laughs> Awesome. So we'll talk, I want to go into like grading and markers because a lot of people listening have no idea what those words mean. But before we get there, let's take a look back at the beginning. Um, For people listening, like what would, what would be some of the advice that you could give for them to best be prepared if they're going to be approaching someone like you um, in terms of how can they be, you know, most ready to, use their time and your time the best and, and get the best results? What are some of the things that you would suggest they do and, or maybe some of the mistakes that people make when they come to you that could save them some time or money during the process? Sure. Um, I think
1: the first thing is that initial email reach out. Um, like I said earlier, there's a huge variety of people saying like, Hey, I want to start a clothing line. Can you help me? Which, yeah doesn't tell me anything uh, <laughs> all the way through people sending me like a, a, either a tech pack or even just like a CAD sketch that they've put together and like, can you help me make this? Which obviously that's a lot more enticing in my inbox when I'm, you know, sifting through various inquiries like, well, this person's prepared, so I want to talk with them versus the other person. Maybe they are prepared, but they just didn't say that in their email or they didn't even say I have sketches or I have my material sourced uh-huh. or... You know, they're not detailed, so we will obviously reply to them, but it's, like, it's going to go down at the bottom of the list, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, So when people are emailing, um, of course, I understand some people are going to be protective over their designs, and they may not feel comfortable immediately sending over their sketches, Um, but mentioning, you know, what what you want to make. So saying, I have a five-piece collection, it's women's wear, I have a top, a dress, a blazer, a pant and a skirt will tell me enough information about what you're doing so I can know if I'm going to be able to do it or not. Um, and also if I can fit something like that in my current workload and my schedule,
0: um,
1: some pattern makers are going to do, um, or specialize in different things. So some might do only outerwear or some might do active wear or, um, ready to wear, or if it is a blazer, maybe that person may or may not do it. Um, I want to know if I can take the job or if I can't, um, or if I have a colleague who might be a good fit for it, I definitely like to recommend, um, colleagues whenever possible. So I'm not just sending the person back out, you know, into the abyss to go Google and, and hopefully (laughs) find someone.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so if I know, you know, a, a good tech designer or another powder maker, I'm, you know, happy to refer business and, you know, keep us all busy. Yeah.
0: Okay, so being clear in my first outreach as to what exactly it is that I need help with, not just, I have this idea and I want to start a fashion brand. Because I've seen those emails too, and I know that they do happen. (laughs) Yeah, and it's just hard when, you know,
1: your time's limited and you want to get to everyone, but there's just not enough time in the day to be able to do that, so... Um, I'd rather be able to solve it in like one or two emails versus like a back and forth five times where I need to extract this information from you. Just, yeah, tell me a little bit about it. So I know what you want to do and, you know, if this is going to work, then I can set up a phone call and we can kind of dive in into more detail. Um, from there, I usually do like a quick kind of 10 or 15 minute phone call with people just to like walk them through the process or answer any kind of process you know related questions Um, and then we'll sit down um, to do a design meeting which I I do charge for because we're sitting down for an hour or two whether that's in person or virtually um, to talk through each design talk through the specs talk through you know the seams and fabrications or if they have sourced some fabric but they're not sure what they want to move forward with I can kind of look at the swatches and advise them what's going to work or not work you know best for their design.
0: Okay, so it sounds like the more upfront work I can do as the designer in terms of maybe having done some research on my fabric, you know, we mentioned Jay from the sourcing district, but there's a lot of sources online that you can look at, or maybe they could have even just gone to the local fabric store and picked out some swatches so they at least have a general idea, even if it's not the bulk fabric that they're able to buy wholesale, that would be a better starting point than nothing, right? Exactly. Yeah. If you can pull a
1: garment or pull something from the fabric store, like you said, then at least I know, oh, we're talking about a ponty knit. We're not talking about like an interlock. Right. And that's important information. Right. For you. Okay. I can help them source or find, you know, a correct wholesale source a lot easier that way.
0: Okay. Gotcha. And then you mentioned, you know, if they have tech packs and a CAD sketch, like that's amazing. But, um, and, and some designers I know do kickstart with that because maybe they have a background in the industry, but what if I don't have those skills? Should I try to be figuring out how to do some of that on my own or like, can I come, is, is it, I can just come with a napkin sketch and some fabric swatches and like we, and maybe some garment samples of like, Oh, and I kind of want the pocket to be like how it is on this dress. And I want the sleeve to be like how it is on this, like almost Frankenstein it together. Yes. Um, Yeah, I'm fine with kind of that,
1: you know, rudimentary sketch. I actually recommend people to build like a little collage, um, which you can do like on Google Sheets or not sheets, um, like the slides, I guess, is the the program or PowerPoint or something like that. And like pull in photos and be like, I like this shirt body, but I like this neckline. I like this um, cuff style. I like the sleeve and kind of, yeah, a Frankenstein image Um, there used to be this program called Polyvore, which I think is gone now, but (laughs) it was kind of like building a collage, um, online. Um, so doing something like that's really helpful because then I can get the overall picture and you don't have to sketch anything at all.
0: Okay. Because I met, you know, that first meeting, you know, we sit down for an hour and, and obviously I'm paying you for your time and that's totally fair, but like, I want to make sure to get the most out of that. So what else can I do to be best prepared? Um, to when I show up at something like that. Um,
1: you'd also want to have a good idea of like what your market is and what your retail like target price point or range is going to be. So I know, are we dealing with, um, you know, a $50 top, $150 top? Cause I'm going to then suggest, um, you know, maybe different seam finishes to you or reducing cost by either simplifying a pattern or, um, sourcing a fabric that's cheaper, you know, something that I can help make sure what we're building is actually going to line up with what you want as the end result.
0: Ah, gotcha. So maybe thinking about like, who is your garment going to hang next to? Like, what's, what is it comparable to in terms of like price point and maybe construction quality?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And a lot of people, you know, they want to make stuff in the USA, which is wonderful. I'm a huge advocate for that. But sometimes if the price point, you know, doesn't work for that or work in conjunction with how complex their design is, you know, something has to give, whether it's a factory choice, maybe you can work with a free trade group, um, a fair trade group that's cheaper than U.S. labor, or maybe you can simplify the pattern, um, you know, garment design to save money, or you can, you know, choose a fabric that's cheaper. So figuring out, like, what mix of those elements are going to work best um, for that client.
0: Right, to meet that desired price point. So. Mm -hmm. On that note, um, just quickly, what are you seeing in terms of minimums? Because I know, like, going overseas, and I think things have changed over the years dramatically, both manufacturing and doing production overseas, and as well as here in the States, Um, and Uh we also have a lot of other international listeners in in the UK and Australia and New Zealand and stuff, but um, what... What are you seeing in terms of minimums for, like, here versus going to China or India or Peru? Or I don't know where some of your sources are, but can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, in the U.S., um, which
1: is most of where I work, um, a lot in Chicago but not exclusively, um, a lot of the factories want to start with 100, as, and that's, like, smaller factories or factories that will take the small lots. Um okay. I think even then they prefer, you know, two hundred and fifty or five hundred as a starting minimum, but they're willing to work with designers at hundred, which is pretty approachable for for most people, um, unless you're hiring like a seamstress um, specifically to your line, uh, which is a route some people do as well, okay. and they'll work with. I work with a couple of very small shops where, I mean, essentially they're doing samples, but that is production to some of these startup designers. And okay. a, great way, a great way to start out, you know, you might be paying more per piece, but at least you're not having to commit to 100 pieces.
0: So they might be making just 20, but they're just working with one individual seamstress that's making the entire garment from start to finish exactly okay as opposed to some type of factory setup assembly line right okay yeah but i feel with factories
1: 100 200 is pretty standard for here um i I work with a couple people doing fair trade in india and both of those places are doing dollar minimum so it might be like a five thousand dollar purchase order interesting pieces and then they'll also have a fabric um Outside of the U.S., they feel like most factories want to be, like, all-inclusive fabric trim um, and sewing, right. not just sewing itself. So you're not providing the inputs they are. So you'll have to commit to however many pounds of fabric or yards of fabric in that, within that order as well. Okay. Um, so it's a little different, just kind okay. of, again, playing with what components make sense.
0: Interesting. Okay. So if you're, if you're doing one of those, you're looking at a dollar minimum and maybe that's around 5,000. I mean, not to like hold you to that, but that's what you've seen. And then some type of minimums on the fabrics. Um, and obviously that's going to vary based on what you're making and how much, what's the, what's the fabric consumption. Right. Exactly. Um, and then what do you what do you see? Well, uh, we're getting a little bit deep into that portion of the process, but <laughs> but quickly, and then we'll go back to the other stuff. Um, yeah. What do you see for production time? Like from the time that I um, after I work with you and I have my finished. My patterns are all graded and ready to go, and my prototype's approved, and I send it off to the factory. Maybe it's here in the U.S., or maybe it's here in India. What are you seeing for the production time to get from that moment to I actually have those 100 or 500 pieces in my hands?
1: I'd say the shortest window is probably about six weeks, at least for an initial run where it's your first time working with the factory or if you're not working with that factory on a regular ongoing basis um, because they're not holding a spot, you know, month to month for you. Okay. So six weeks is probably the shortest. Um, I'd say average is probably eight weeks, 12 weeks. Okay. I've seen it longer, um, particularly with India. Um, but it, I think it all depends on like how busy the factory is, how many other jobs they have, you know, ongoing at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's similar scheduling for me and and squeezing someone in when they say, how long will this take? Well, it might only take, you know, a a couple of months, but obviously they're not the only job in there. So the process is a little longer.
0: Right. Okay.
1: But I'd say for like the average, I'd say like six weeks, eight weeks, and probably up to 12 weeks is pretty standard. Longer than that is uncommon, but it does happen.
0: Okay. And if you're going over to overseas, it definitely adds some time. Right, yeah. Okay. We'll get back to this episode in 20 seconds, but real quick, did you know that the SFD podcast is sponsored by you? We don't interrupt your listening experience with ads and instead rely on your support. There are three ways you can do that. One, tell a friend about the podcast. Two, sign up for the email list at soheidy.com slash email. That's S-E-W-H-E-I-D-I.com slash email. Three, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for supporting the SFD Podcast. Now, back to the episode. Um, Okay, so back to our first meeting, and we come prepared with our Frankenstein collage and maybe some actual garment or fabric samples to take a look at, you know, what are we actually making this garment out of, and Mm -hmm. then where do we go? Uh, So from there, I'm putting
1: together kind of that preliminary tech pack so they can see everything that's laid out you have your flat sketch um put together you can approve seam styles a lot of people may not know what they're asking for or looking for particularly with seam so we'll, we'll do swatch testing um where we'll you know maybe we're testing an edge stitch versus a top stitch versus a cover stitch for example so i'll take their real fabric test those out, show them, okay, what do you like the best? Um, And sometimes we will eliminate it ourselves and say, you know, this fabric really doesn't work this way. (laughs) Um, Or if you really love it, we'll try to, you know, do some additional testing or, you know, test an interfacing or somehow make it work. But yeah, doing the seam test before we, you know, go into the pattern and the full prototype is smart. Uh, You know, it's an extra step in some cases, but it really ultimately saves time and headache later. (laughs) yeah so we we do that. Um, obviously, take measurement specs, whether that's from the garment or in combination with like the fit model, which some people are their own fit model. I recommend hiring a fit model, but um, why is that? You know, I think you can be more objective when you see it on another body versus trying to evaluate it on yourself. Yeah, I also think um particularly when people are using themselves or friends' family. Like a fit model's their job is to stay the same size.
0: <laughs> right. They get paid to maintain us normal
1: Yeah, the rest of us normal people. That's not really like a consideration. So um, it's I think it's easier to just evaluate it that way, mm-hmm. knowing, you know, your fit model is committed to being that size consistently and um you don't have to worry about like asking your best friend to lose or gain weight. <laughs> or <laughs> hey, you're a up three pounds. This
0: is not working. <laughs> yeah. Like,
1: that's, that's awkward. Nobody wants to have that yeah. conversation.
0: Yeah. So um, go ahead.
1: I was just to say, but I, I do think it's easier to like evaluate it where you're looking like at it on another person versus in a mirror on yourself but that said, people do it and it works. So I, it wouldn't be like a non-negotiable for me or something like that. But okay. I do recommend adding that into the budget if you can.
0: Yeah. Um, so speaking of fit, this is something that um, I get emails about this a lot. Uh, people asking me, how do I figure out my graded spec? Or do I mm-hmm. if, asking me if I have a template for a graded spec for a t-shirt. I was like, well, it doesn't really work quite that way um so can you explain a little bit about first of all what a graded spec is and second Mm -hmm. um how as a designer who's starting their own brand or something to that extent how do I want to think about fit and how do I even approach coming up with what my fit might be where where do you suggest I start with that sort of thing
1: um, so let's tackle the, I guess the fit with the base size. Cause that's really what we're working with. So when we make your first pattern, we're choosing a, a sample size, a base size uh, to start with. We're not making, you know, five sizes at one time. Right. So choosing that fit model, whether again, whether that's you, whether that's hiring a fit model, you want it to be someone who's within your market. So if you're, you know, within the age group that you're selling to, um, so that it's accurate, like you wouldn't want to have like a twenty-year-old fit model if your market is, you know, forty to sixty-year-old women. That doesn't really make sense. Right. Your bodies change over time and are different. Um, if you're marketing to, let's say, activewear, CrossFit market, you probably want to pick a model who's an athlete who is in CrossFit because like their muscular structure is going to be different from just an average person who doesn't work out on a regular basis or those type of workouts. So thinking about like your fit model being someone that could be your customer, um, I think is important and a good place to start. From there, I try to get people to choose a medium size. So whether that's Whatever your size range is, so if it's like a small through XL, choosing a medium so it's something that's in the middle makes it easier to then grade up and grade down, versus if you chose like an extra small and now you're hoping that when you grade it all the way up to an <laughs> extra larger 2X that it's still like proportionately good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's less likely to be um, not impossible, but yeah, the grading might be a little a um, little different, and also. I'm all about inclusive sizing and I think it's great when brands want to do like, you know, 10 different sizes, for example, but you might have to test that in say like a size six and then a test it again in size 16 so that you know that again, everyone is being fit properly. You're not trying to grade this giant scale and, uh, Get it out of proportion, so it doesn't look good on anybody.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, talk a little bit about grade grading, graded spec, because these are words you and I throw around very casually, um, but a lot of people are like, "What does that actually mean? How does that work?"
1: Yeah. So, I'm primarily dealing with, like I said, the base size. However, I do help people kind of come up with their their basic grade roles. Usually, I'll bring in my colleague um, who does the grading to help with. The might, you know, the what the shoulder slope, for example, is going to grade. I'm not as concerned about that, but I will. My process is to have people shop different brands that are selling to the same market. So they might pull a size chart from The Gap and they might pull a size chart from, um, I don't know, Macy's. Um, they might pick like different brands that they're that they would sell to and compare those size charts, um, which would just be the body measurements to what their brand is and see kind of what the difference is between each size. So it might be, you know, plus two inches at the bust um, plus three inches at the hip instead of two or something like that. So kind of picking out what is their basic size chart um, understanding if they want to grade things like inseam, proportionately with the sizing or if they want their inseam to stay like 32 inches for every single size so making some choices up front like that um but then for the 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 other grade rules like I said shoulder slope or armhole grade I kind of leave that up to my colleagues and she is the expert there (laughs)
0: Gotcha. And so just to clarify, the grading refers to how much the garment, the measurement changes, whether it's getting larger or getting smaller as you jump from one size to the next. Was that how you yep. would kind of yes. phrase it? <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, okay. And there's just so many intricacies to that. And I, I go back to my original comment of people are like, oh, do you have a template for a Bathing suit, graded spec, or something like that. It's like, okay, well, this really depends. Is it a bathing suit for a 20-year-old? Is it a bathing suit for a 60-year-old? Is it a two-piece? Is it a one-piece? Like, what's the demographic? Is it a really active fit um market is it more just everyday wear um i i interviewed someone who was doing large bust active like really active swimwear so it was like you had a really large bust and you also had like a really strong body so like that fit and those grade rules are going to be very very different than the everyday swimsuit that you might find at Forever 21 or Macy's and so it's hard to like put a template on these things right Yeah.
1: And each brand is going to be a little different, especially when you're first starting, let's say your first collection, you're, you're really testing the market. So you might change your grade rules a little bit after that first run and say, you know, I think like my larger sizes need to be tweaked a little bit or smaller sizes or something like maybe they need a little more or less ease. Maybe you didn't grade the inseam and now you want to, like, you're going to be figuring out a lot of that information as you go. So it's, it's good to be flexible in that. Gotcha.
0: Um, okay. So we figure out the, uh, I am, I think I got lost on where we were in the process. We figure out that we get the pattern, you, you figure out all the construction details. So like what stitches are going to go where, and you do that in small little sample swatches, which is great, um, Mm -hmm. procedure. I absolutely think that that's brilliant how you have that built into your process. Um, And then, then what happens next? Are we off to making the first prototype and seeing how does this thing actually work? And and let's say we've selected our fit model by now too.
1: Yes. Yeah. So if you hadn't already ordered, like, you know, yardage for sampling, we do that. So I usually recommend knowing that we do, you know, three or four samples on average, that we purchase enough material for that entire thing. That way you're not having to reorder and pay for shipping over and over again from the (laughs) vendor. Um, In some cases, people aren't totally sure on a fabric. So they'll order enough for one. And let's say they do like their first prototype, but they're testing in two fabrics. Then in that case would be different. I'd say like Okay, let's just order enough for one and then after that we know we'll probably need more. Okay. Uh, but we'd at least have enough for the first one regardless. So we'll go ahead with sewing a, a full complete prototype um with the real seams with top stitching in most cases and that way they can get a full idea for like what is this going to look like and feel like on the body um and then we'll schedule a fitting to you know, take take measurements, um, decide what's changing. Maybe the neckline is dropping. Maybe the shoulder width is getting longer. Um, Maybe the sleeve length changes. In most cases, we're focusing primarily on the fit and the fabrication and like how everything is working and functioning. Um, Sometimes after the fitting, let's say we're doing an athletic um, line, you might take the sample for a week and, you know, test it out in your actual workout and see if you have additional feedback of like Mm -hmm. maybe standing still this worked. Um, but after, you know, wearing it for a week and doing real workouts, you want it to be a little bit tighter of a fit or maybe after washing and wearing it, um, it shrank a little bit. So we want to build that in as well.
0: Yeah. The real life application is so crucial and it does, it adds time, but Mm -hmm. I mean, I know I've talked to brands who have, you know, made 20 samples and then sent them out to like real people who were like doing CrossFit and like got feedback from 20 people to really make sure that like, it's not just one person wearing this and giving feedback after a week, but we're going to get like a good sample size and make sure we need to make the tweaks. And that adds time and money, but can Mm -hmm. create such a better end result. So I love that you bring that up.
1: Yeah. And sometimes that's not done on the very first prototype. Maybe that's like sure. just you, but once you are feeling pretty good about it, you definitely want to test it and, and see it on different bodies of the same, you know, measurements. Cause right. each body is built slightly differently, even if the measurements are the same yes, for sure. Um, and yeah, testing it in like a real applications. So like if you're doing CrossFit and you're going to be squatting, you want to make sure <laughs> that like the the rise is going to be covering um, your backside and not have to worry about slippage <laughs> and stuff like that. So, yeah, thinking about, like, how is this garment going to get worn in real life? And, yeah, we're not just standing still or, you know, going down a runway. Yeah. Like, we have to live and wear wear those. <laughs> yeah.
0: So and then from there, it, it, imagine you go through some more prototypes to make revisions and implement any changes in terms of construction or um, the grading, or not necessarily the grading, but the just the the measurements on that base size. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the biggest challenges and hiccups you see during the the prototype phase? Whether you're making you know two, three prototypes, or you ultimately get to seven, eight, just because the garment is really complex and maybe very, very unique, but. Um, what are some of the, the biggest challenges you see in that process from the designer's perspective and how could they maybe try to help things go a little bit more smoothly and, and not quicker in a bad way, but like not waste resources, let's say. Right. Um, sometimes if like, we're not sure about a fabric or especially if like
1: the seam test came in, um, inconsistently, let's say, we might decide based on your five piece collection, we might, um, and let's say three of them are dresses. We might decide to start with one style of those three and kind of make sure the fit is basically there before we go through all three of them. Um, I do this a lot with like pants and shorts too. There's no reason to prototype both. If they're ultimately coming from the same block, you want to like perfect the block first. Yeah.
0: Explain what a block is really quickly. Can you?
1: Sure. Um so black um can either be it can be two things. So it can either be like what some people call a sloper, kind of like your basic bodice, basic pant or basic skirt. Um I wanna say black again while defining <laughs> this. <that. laughs> um, it's a block. But like, it's a black. <laughs> um so that yeah, so that's kind of like one version of it. Um another can be a black style, which would be let's say you had a season prior, you perfected and now love this dress. It fits great. So now season two, you want to make another dress. We go back to reference that other dress, even if a lot of things are different, you know, neckline, sleeve, body style is a little bit different. We know you know, this waist and hip ratio works, we know that this, like, bus start works, um, we can, I can use that as a starting point to build your next pattern, which ultimately saves a lot of time. Right. Um, probably saves you at least one extra prototype just because we have something that we're starting from, um, versus just a list of measurements.
0: Right, right, right. Okay. So just some of the base measurements that you can then base other garments off of as a reference point.
1: Exactly. Okay, yeah. Perfect. So if, if a, de- if a designer is, has their collection, and they have a few pieces that are very similar to one another. It makes sense that we perfect one of, let's say, the three dresses versus starting with all three. And I know, likely, like if I did make all three as a as a first proto in the same group, I might be taking in the waist, let's say, for every single one.
0: Right, which is just inefficient.
1: Instead of, yeah, so instead of doing that, we just start with the one, kind of make sure that we're happy with that body style, and then we can start the second one, third one from that. Gotcha. So usually I try to break that down for people or say, I mean, yeah, it might add a month or two onto your development because we're not condensing them, um, into as many fittings, but ultimately it saves money and probably some headache of feeling like, oh, didn't we do this? Or (laughs) why are we doing the same thing (laughs) on multiple garments? That kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Like in a way you're almost building a little bit of a template that you then just modify accordingly for each style after that, assuming it's a dress versus a dress and a pant versus a pant. Right. Right. Or sometimes even like a a top into a dress or vice versa because you're
1: using the same same elements
0: right for sure for sure and like you said the pant into the short or the Mm -hmm. skirt could go into the dress you just kind of think of like how do these pieces translate into a different type of piece right
1: and especially when it's your like first or you know early collections where you don't have patterns yet at all or you only have a couple it's good to think about that um so you kind of build your pattern library
0: gotcha Do people ever approach you with physically, uh, physical sound samples that they've made to try to like make their own prototype?
1: Yes. Not a lot. Um, I just have to explain that it's kind of, I still have to go through the same process. Um, I can, sometimes I can take apart or pull measurements to recreate, you know, their prototype, but I, if they didn't make a pattern, I still have to make a pattern. Right. Um, I've actually encountered this a couple of times not necessarily with someone with a prototype, but they'll ask me to make a prototype, but they're like, I don't need a pattern. I just need a prototype. <laughs> like, well, it doesn't really work that way. Like if you're making a pillow, sure. You could just measure on the fabric and like make a square or a rectangle. But when you're making, especially like a pair of pants or something, that's really, you can't fake that. You need the pattern um, to make the prototype. Yeah. You yeah. need, a, you need a Pattern. And I know there's, you know, there's dressmakers and tailors who can just kind of do that, but they're also only making one. Yeah. So if you have any intent to reproduce it or go into production or sell it to other people, like you need to have a pattern to be able to recreate it and to edit, you know, what went wrong.
0: Right, right, right. Otherwise you've got this finished garment and you're like, okay, well, we need to make modifications. It's almost like you have to take that apart and then turn it into a pattern afterwards. It's just, you're kind of working super backwards.
1: Yeah. And yeah. that's always, it's not a perfect process either like recreating something whether it's a retail garment that's already made or whether it's a prototype someone made without a pattern you know we don't know how much seam allowance they might have cut off like let's say they're you know surging the edges did they surge and not cut anything off did they cut off an eighth of an inch like there's things you have to figure out from that or if they made any alteration in some way um yeah, it's just not a, a perfect process. Like, you can, you can strike it off and copy it, and it'll be close, but you're still going to have to prototype it more than one time.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, okay, so we get through our prototypes. We try to be smart about, like, efficiencies in terms of if we have three dresses, let's start with one and get that dialed in, and then take what we learned from that and apply it to the next ones. Um, any other big, like, mistakes or challenges that come up during that process that... The the designer or the brand could be prepared for in advance. Um, I think a big one. It's not really
1: directly related to the prototyping, but some people forget to do the other things in their business at the same time. So <laughs> while I'm you know helping them as the pattern maker with the patterns and prototypes, I can't help them necessarily like with graphic design or labels and hang tags and things like that. So. Yeah the designer really has their own checklist of things that they need to be doing for their business. Um, And even if they're established and already have labels, let's say brand labels, they still have to come up with like their care and content label and things like that. So there's things a lot of people, especially in the first couple of times, they feel like they forget to do those or they don't realize like, oh, now I've approved these styles, I'm ready for the factory, but they didn't have those things in place yet. So it's like playing catch up at the end of development when they could have been doing it simultaneously or some of it.
0: Ah, yeah. That's a great bit of advice. There's all these other little moving pieces and parts that have to go into it. Um, all like just the trims and the findings. And like you said, even like the care and the content label. Right. Yeah. Yep. And going back to the vendors and making sure like your items
1: are still in stock or what the lead time is for, When you are ready to order it for the factory, sometimes people end up with surprises like, oh, I thought this was a stock item, but they're, like, back-ordered and I need to wait three weeks. Something like that comes up, and there's not much you can do about that, you know.
0: Yeah, you're just kind of on hold. Yeah. Okay. So trying to maybe just keep keep track of all those pieces and parts while you're doing the prototypes and and figuring out the pattern making and all that stuff. There's Mm -hmm. also things that I should be working on.
1: Right. Okay. And just knowing, I think the designer, knowing that you are ultimately the project manager of your company yeah. and product development and pattern making is a piece of that. And I'm managing that within my space. Um, but, but yeah, they still have to be kind of on top of me, on top of their vendors, on top of their factory and just being in communication with everyone to make sure things are happening as they're supposed to, or if they're not, how they can adjust, And I just feel like the whole thing needs to be, like, a very open communication. Um, Product development is seldomly, I feel like, a linear process. (laughs) You know, it it might be smooth for a little while. And then something, you know, something goes wrong, whether it was, like, a bad sample, a bad fabric, something was late. You know, there's always, like, some random thing always is a hiccup. (laughs) Hopefully it's not a big one. But, you know, things happen and you just have to be, like, prepared for the un- the unknown and also okay with like, you know, don't get mad about it. Talk through it with the various (laughs) people and, and figure out a solution for how to come back from that.
0: Yeah. So I think it's pretty clear at which point in the process we're, you know, sourcing our fabric like maybe we sourced it before we started this whole process maybe we came with an idea based off of a swatch or another garment and then you helped us find a resource or, or whatever it might be but at which point are we concerned with um, figuring out what factory we're going to be using do we save that until we have our finished prototype and we're like ready to go into bulk production or when and where are we thinking I should probably figure out this factory component?
1: So I don't recommend approaching the fabric or the factory, excuse me, before you have at least a basic tech pack and before your first prototype. Okay. Cause they usually will want to see at least a photo. Um, but oftentimes they'll want to see a real garment. And we also know like, okay, if we're changing some seams or something like that, like we're going to find that out a lot of it in the first prototype. So it's kind of pointless to go to the factory before you have those things in place because they're not going to be able to answer the question or not, be, not going to be able to give you any kind of quote, which is what you want um, as a designer. So having the tech pack and the sample um, and obviously pattern um, in place first is important. That said, sometimes we'll do factory samples during our development process I might do proto one and proto two in-house but then we start working with the factory later um, so that we can kind of kick off that factory relationship they know production is coming you know down the line and also the designer can get a feel for the factory relationship the quality and start to get pricing for production um, as early as we can sometimes um, we might be in talks with factories or they might be Kind of interviewing factories to get a feel for who's going to work, um, in terms of the minimum quantities, in terms of these are the types of stitches that we have. Do you have these machines? And just making sure that's a good fit. Yeah. Which you can't do without the tech pack um, or the sample, um, but really the tech pack has all that information. So, yeah, I would never approach a factory without a minimum of a tech pack, though.
0: Okay, I love that you bring that up because it's something I definitely <laughs> preach as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, um, and there, there are um, you know full service factories out there that can help you you know develop from a napkin sketch. So that's sure. not a global statement, but I think most of the time when you're looking to find someone just to do your production, you do need to kickstart off with some. You need to be prepared to present yourself to them and what exactly is it that you're asking them to do.
1: Right. Right. So, and I I tell them I'll give clients kind of a sample email to like make sure they're mentioning. I have a tech pack, even if they don't want to send it in that first email. Uh. That's, again, that's okay. Like I have my tech pack. I yeah. have a digital pattern. It's graded or it's not graded yet. Um, I have a prototype I can send you as a so-buy to like mention those things. So again, the factory, just kind of like my inquiry process, if the factory is receiving that email, like, oh, this person's serious. Like I'm going to, I'm going to talk with them and make sure like they have all the things they need. But if you're mentioning it off the bat, they know and they know if they can work with you or not.
0: Right. So it goes back to the same type of email you might send out to someone like you of like, I have this, I have this, like I've done a little bit of research and I'm, I have something to start with. Right. And they know you're serious and you might not be ready to put in a purchase order, obviously at that point,
1: but you could say, you know, I'm looking to make 50 of this dress in one color, um, or I'm looking to make, you know, five styles and, you know, a hundred of each or something like that, just to give them an idea and those things might change, but at least it's the start of a conversation. Again, they can see that you're, you're serious.
0: Right. Right. I love that. Um, okay. So we get through the prototype stage and let's say we get to our finished approved prototype. What happens next? So if you hadn't already been working with the factory at that point,
1: um, we'll usually do a factory sample, um, Sometimes I'm involved with that. Sometimes client kind of handles that on their own, but usually I'm helping with at least sending the files or answering questions about the tech pack that you know the designer may or may not be able to answer themselves. Um, so I'm still a liaison there. Um, and we might be simultaneously sending it off for grading. Um, unless the factory is doing sized samples or a size run of samples, um, they can just take my you know sample size, which honestly is better because then we can get the sample back, measure it, and compare it back to, like, our approved prototype and make sure, I don't know, no stretching of seams happened or um, nothing was cut off in a weird way, that, like, your fit from my prototype to their factory prototype is still the same. Right.
0: And and then we kind
1: of dive into production? Yeah, dive into production. So you get your purchase order, um get everything out to your vendors. If you hadn't already, you know, put them on hold. Um, sometimes you can, you can buy, um, let's say you need a hundred yards of your fabric, you can buy it and then just wait to ship it. So you're not shipping it too early to the factory, but that way, you know, this is on hand. The fact you know, the vendor you're is not going to run out of your material. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: <laughs> Which happens, yeah. I think more often than people think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, I th- yeah. You know, the vendors have obviously multiple clients that they're sending things out to as well. So even if it's a stock item, you know, sometimes they might sell more than they normally do and they are backordered for a month or two, which yeah. obviously would affect your timeline. Right. So, yeah, staying in communication, even when you're not ready to place the order, um, just say, hey, like we're prototyping with your material and um, everything's going great. Do you still have this in stock? Is like, a good check in
0: email to yeah. send a rep <laughs> Yeah. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Um, Awesome. And so then it wraps up. We do our bulk production and we have our garments and we sell them and we move on. I mean, there's obviously a lot of moving pieces beyond that, um, which we talked about in other episodes. But as far as the development process, that wraps it up. It does. It does. Awesome. Uh Awesome.
1: yeah, sometimes with factories, um, and again, particularly with the first first run, you know, sometimes people hire me to go to the factory and check things out, or they'll send me the pre-production sample or the top of production sample to just kind of verify against the tuck pack again. So we're we're involved, you know, as long as you need us to be. We're not managing the factory day to day, but we're able to go and check in and just make sure things are progressing as they should.
0: Yeah. Explain um, the PP, the pre-production, and the TOP, the top production samples, because those are again things you and I throw around. But I think a lot of people don't realize how many samples are happening, even once you have your final prototype approved. Right.
1: So your pre-production sample is usually also like your costing samples. So your factory is making it, um, making your garment either for the first time or as a counter sample to their you know first time if they if it wasn't approved. Um, but your pre-production should be like your, your final sample before production. So it's your real fabric, your real trims, your real thread colors, everything. The factory is putting it together, not a sample maker outside of the factory. Um, and then a top of production sample happens. The important distinction is really that it's happening after everything is cut. So with your pre-production sample, if there was something... That you wanted to catch or change, it's still possible. But with a top of production, <laughs> all of your fabric has been cut. Yeah. And you're much, much more limited in terms of things that could change um, with that. But it's a good idea to still get that top of production sample uh, to make sure, again, that the sewing matches your, your sew by before you, they make everything.
0: <laughs> oh, so you see a top of production sample before everything's sewn. Yeah, everything is cut, but not everything is sewn. Oh, I've never seen it that way. For everything I've ever done is, and I've only, I've never done stateside production to be totally transparent. I've done everything overseas um your pp your pre-production sample is the last chance to catch anything yes you can change construction they haven't cut anything you can move the label but top of production is just a, a sample uh, a garment that's randomly pulled out of the production line but everything else is already done like it's done it's just your reference sample for what the final bulk production is so and that that's might vary both factor
1: factory too so it's important to like make sure you ask that like if i yeah. want to Up of production does that mean you're done and you just haven't shipped it to me yet and I'm approving it before shipping or does this mean um you're pulling one off the line sewing
0: it yeah because at that stage you could like still like move a label or something like that Right. The way the way you explained it. Interesting. Wow. That's the first time I've heard anyone, um, have it go that way. So yeah, but you're right. I think that's a great point is ask your factory, like, what is each of these sample, what stage does each of these samples represent? And like, what ability do I have to change things at each stage? Mm-hmm. That's very smart. Um, Awesome. So It was really fantastic to chat with you and thank you so much for all your advice and expertise on everything throughout the development and production process. Um, where Absolutely. can, yeah, where can everybody find you and connect with you online?
1: Um, so my website is social.com, which is X O C H I L.com. You can also Google the Chicago pattern maker, Um, I think you can also go to the chicagopatternmaker.com and it'll forward you. Um, and then Instagram is kind of my primary, um, social media spot that I hang out and my handles at fashion social again, X O C H I L. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn and Facebook, but I think Instagram is kind of my primary, (laughs)
0: Awesome. We will link to all of that in the show notes. And I would love to wrap up with the question I ask everybody at the end of the podcast. And that is, um, what is one thing people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they would?
1: Oh, that's a tough one. Um, one thing people don't ask. I think maybe I wish they would ask about the testing process more, or like have a better understanding of that. Um, I think a lot of people see like the project runway, or they see like the end results, kind of from a lot of people, but they don't see the start to finish process and how many iterations it really, really takes. Um, it's hard, and it's sometimes it's hard to explain that versus live it. So, but I think a lot of people. They kind of understand, yes, I'm doing a couple of prototypes, but they don't realize how common it is to for like I say mistakes, but they're not really like mistakes that someone did wrong, but just mistakes in the development process of like, well, we didn't think this would happen with this fabric or this design change would affect things in this way um, but every little every little decision or component that you have involved in the process is like equally important to one another so.
0: Yeah, and I think it's easy to discount, like, how many moving pieces and parts really go into a garment.
1: Yeah, and I guess also, like, how many people are involved in that yeah. process as well. <laughs> that's so true. Um, yes. That's so true. From, from the development, through the factory, through, I mean, all of it, there's many multiple people involved. And um, I think that's why mistakes can happen is because we're all human, and there's so many of us involved in that process. But yeah open communication is, like, the, the key to making it all work together.
0: Yeah, and I think, too, just being aware of that and going in, knowing that, like, this is not going to be, like, even if you've been in production for, like, 10 years, you know, I most of the brands I've worked with are all established and, at least for a few years and they've done this many, many times, but like things still go wrong and there's still hiccups and things get delayed or like this weird thing happened that we didn't know. Like you just can't predict that. So just even going in, knowing that that is going to mm-hmm. happen, I think can maybe alleviate some of the anxieties you might face if you just thought everything was going to go perfectly yeah. smooth.
1: Yeah. Always add buffer time, um, you know, be aware of holidays, whether they're domestic or internationally, you know, yes. depending where you're working. Yes. Um, have that on your calendar with some buffer time, know that something will go wrong, um, <laughs> but just be as organized and as clear as you possibly can. Um, you know, reiterating what button color you're ch- talking about um, so people know <laughs> uh, <laughs> what you're doing. Um, yeah, just communication is the, the hugest, hugest thing.
0: Yeah, I love that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing, and it was really, really lovely to have you on the show.
1: Thank you so much, Heidi. I'm really happy to be involved and excited to um, hopefully hear from some listeners as well.
0: <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. And uh, two big thank yous go out to people who work behind the scenes on the show. My husband, Mark, who handles all of the tech and the editing and makes sure that the audio sounds good. As well as my right-hand woman, Tara, who does so much to get the show scheduled and published to you on mondays as well as all the coordinating of the guests behind the scenes there is so much that goes into this that you guys don't see so thank you mark and tara for making this possible for everyone um, and again thank you to you for listening as a quick reminder sfd is way more than just a podcast to get access to my best free resources to help you get ahead in the fashion industry head on over to slash email it's s-e-w-h-e-i-d-i.com email if you're not into that give me a follow on instagram i do hang out there as well it's also at soheidi and if you have enjoyed this episode or any other episodes of the successful fashion designer podcast and iTunes or Apple podcast review goes so, so far. If you can take 30 seconds to leave one of those, we really appreciate it. It helps other people find the show and it helps us rank in the Apple podcast ecosystem. So you can do that by just scrolling down wherever you're listening in uh, Apple podcasts and taking those seconds to leave a review. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the successful fashion designer podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.